<clears throat> Good morning. I invite you to uh, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8 and uh, pray for me this morning. Uh, our sermon is all about inadequacy, and I have much to feel inadequate about, but above other things, I've spent the last 24 hours or so in bed with uh, a case of the crud. And uh, I'm living on chloroseptic spray and hoping that uh, my voice lasts for this hour together. If it doesn't, we'll just go home early. We're beginning a new study this morning, and for the next 12 months or so, we are going to be looking at the life of King David uh, and looking at it from a most unusual way. Typically, when one studies David's life, you'll turn to the books of First and Second Samuel and you'll read the historical narrative concerning his life, which is fascinating. It makes wonderful uh, stories to reflect on, wonderful stories to uh, read to your children. But there's another half to David's life, and that's found in the book of Psalms. And so this year, what we're going to be doing is going back and forth between the historical narrative, the description of the particular incident in David's life, and then the book of Psalms to read his diary, to read his heart's perspective on what he was experiencing as he went through that particular event in his life. Uh, I might add that uh, growth groups will be starting this week, and uh, we'll be studying 1 Samuel 16. If you're interested in visiting a growth group, there's information in the back of the auditorium that invites you to uh, to find a group where you can uh, become involved and actually have a chance to interact uh, together over these passages before we study them. But this morning, I'm going to try something very unique. Uh, I, want to, I want us to look at uh, 1 Samuel 8 through 15, uh, quite a, a lengthy uh, portion of Scripture. And the title of this sermon, as you may have noticed in the bulletin, is The Rise and Fall of Tall King Saul. Uh, we will be quizzing you on your way out the door. You'll need to be able to say that five times very quickly. Please don't get that confused with Old King Cole, okay? <laughs> My daughters asked me to mention that. Um, we are at a place of transition in the life of Israel. Uh, for several hundred years, they had operated uh, under a theocratic form of government. God was their king. And he used specific leaders, such as Moses uh, and others, to, uh, to speak to them and to lead them. He led in most unusual ways, and he uh, accomplished his purposes in most unusual ways. He uh, delivered his law on two tablets, uh, something that was most surprising to uh, the nation. He delivered them from Egyptian uh, bondage by parting the Red Sea performing a miracle uh, through which they could escape uh, Egyptian domination. And in chapter 7 of 1 Samuel, and those are just a, a couple of events, there are certainly uh, dozens of others that could come to mind if we uh, took the time to think of it. But in chapter 7, we see another unusual event in the life of Israel. Uh, Samuel, who is God's spokesman at this point in their history, uh, called the nation to repentance. He called the nation to assemble at Mizpah and asked them to repent from their spiritual apathy. The Philistines had, uh, had been a dominant uh, power for some 20 years and Israel had been cowering 
uh, under their uh, uh, under their presence. And he asks Israel to believe in the Lord again and to walk with him. And he offers a sacrifice and he intercedes for the nation. And while all of this is going on, the Philistines are drawing near to, uh, uh, to sort of kick sand in the face of Israel once again. And uh, as they draw near and as they see Samuel calling the nation to uh, repentance and sacrificing and interceding for the nation, uh, their energies uh, in opposition to Israel grow fierce and the Lord responds in a miraculous way. And he brings about a storm that routs the enemy and sends them to flight. And God's children have nothing more to do than to simply chase them back to their own borders. Once again, proving in a most unusual way that the Lord is God and that He's sufficient to be their king. Uh, Samuel erects a stone that is given the name Ebenezer, which literally means the Lord has helped us. And that was to be a memorial forever, a reminder to His people that God was a faithful king. God was a king who could provide for them. God was a king who could protect them. And yet as we come to chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, we discover that the nation is unsatisfied. They want a king just like all the other nations. God apparently was not enough for them. Begin reading in verse 4 of chapter 8. So all of the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, You are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to a, a, a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected as their king, but me, as they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. And Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. And he will take a tenth of your grain and of all your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your men servants and maidservants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When this day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered, Listen to them, 
give them a king. You see, Israel was bent on having a king, and not even God could talk them out of it. Uh, he tells them that uh, their sons and daughters are going to be uh, drafted, will be uh, human conscription, uh, taxation would be uh, greater than they'd ever known before. And yet they said, that doesn't matter. We want a king. We want to be just like all the other nations. They presumed, I suppose, just as we do at times, to know what was better for them than God did. And interestingly, as a wise parent, the Lord consents to give them exactly what they asked for. He gave them a king, as we'll see shortly. And with it, they had to live with the consequences of their decision. Now, in chapters 9 and 10, we uh, have the story of Samuel meeting Saul and uh, anointing Saul for leadership. The most unusual way that they met, uh, Saul uh, was working for his father and some donkeys were missing and his father sent him out to find him and as they were looking, he ran into Samuel. And in verse 20 of chapter 9, Samuel says to, uh, to Saul, As for the donkeys you lost three days ago, do not worry about them. They have been found. But then he adds, And to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and your father's family? This was Saul's way of or Samuel's way, rather, of, of saying to, to Saul, you are the one that all Israel has been looking to. And I imagine Saul probably swallowed very hard and, and said, who, me? You've got to be kidding. He answered in verse 21, but am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? You see, Saul is incredulous. He cannot believe that God wants to use him in this way. No way, Samuel. Impossible. I'm not cut out for this job. I don't have what it takes. Find someone else. These must have been the thoughts going through uh, Saul's mind. And in chapter 10, as, uh, as Samuel calls the nation to assemble to introduce them to their new king. We read in verse 20 of chapter 10, When Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. And then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's uh, clan was chosen. Finally, Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, Yes, he has hidden himself among the baggage. And they ran and brought him out, and as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than all of the others. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. And then the people shouted, Long live the king. It's interesting, on, on Saul's big day, rather than, than confidently stepping forward, 
he finds himself hiding among the baggage. And I, I suspect that was quite a trick considering his height. Here he was, hunkered down, cowering behind the luggage. And you see, he was because he felt terribly inadequate, very ill-equipped for the job he'd been called to do. He was overcome by the reality of his own insufficiency and his unworthiness for the job. And to make matters worse, he knew that others probably held the same opinion of him. Look at verses uh, 25 and following. Samuel explained to the people the regulations of the kingship, and he wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. And then Samuel dismissed the people each to his own home. And Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But some troublemakers said, How can this fellow save us? And they despised him and brought him no gifts. You see, they looked at him and they said the same thing that Saul was saying about himself. This guy can't cut it. This guy isn't king material. This guy doesn't have any unique gifts to make him qualified to lead us as a nation. How would you feel were you just thrust into to this sort of position? How would you feel if you were Saul? How do you feel when you're asked to do something that you feel terribly inadequate for? Perhaps it's at work. Your employer comes to you and, and says, I, I've got a new project. And uh, it's sort of experimental, and we're not sure... Uh, what sort of ex uh, success to expect. It's risky, but uh, we've chosen you to take it on because uh, we're confident that you've got what it takes. Well, some of us might uh, swallow rather hardly, get that lump in the throat, think, oh, gee, this is risky. I don't know if I want to do it. Perhaps feeling safer in an arena in which you know you can succeed. Or how would you feel? How do you feel when an elder or a leader of one of the ministries here at Cole comes to you and, and says, you know, you've, you've been uh, here for some time and we'd like to invite you to, to begin to serve in this ministry and in this way. You find yourself thinking, man, I'm not cut out for this. They must be kidding. <laughs> Who do they think I am? Or perhaps God comes to you directly, taps you on the shoulder in the way that only His Spirit can do and says, you know that, that person that you've really been running away from You've been struggling to love. I don't want you to run away. I want you to move in next to them. I want you to continue to be patient with them. I want you to continue to love, even though it doesn't seem as if it's something you can do. And our response is, Lord, I can't. I'm inadequate. I don't have what it takes. 
Sometimes I think we're, we're simply afraid of failure. We're afraid of being found out to be inadequate, of being inadequate. Because you see, I, I really believe that deep down inside, what we want most of all is to feel good about who we are. And generally, we look to others to give us that sense of affirmation. If we're respected, if we're loved, if we're thought highly of, then we feel good about who we are. And if people don't respond to us in that way, if their respect is, is sort of suspect, at least from our perspective, we, we have a sense of, of loss. And so consequently, most of us don't like to be in situations where those core longings of our heart are placed at risk. We choose to operate in arenas in which we know we can succeed, where we'll be safe, where our feelings of inadequacy don't have to be threatened, where we don't have to be found out. See, Saul had no choice. He was introduced as the new king. Uh, he came from good family stock. He was well-educated. He possessed a striking appearance. We're told that he uh, stood head and shoulders above everyone else in, in the nation. And yet he lacked the self-confidence that we would expect from a, a head of state. And worse still, he feared that the minority opinion regarding himself, an opinion I might add that he agreed with, would become the majority opinion, that everyone would see that he was a failure, that he didn't have what it took to be king. And so from this point forward, for the next 40 years, Saul tried to prove himself. He tried to establish his reign by validating his leadership and by proving his critics wrong. He made it his ambition that others might look at him and say, He's got it all together. In chapter 11, his, his kingdom is established uh, through an, an interesting event. Uh, Saul musters the nation into battle against Nahash, the Ammonite, in defense of uh, the men of Gabish Gilead who were being held hostage. And God, through Saul, proved successful. And Saul won the respect and the admiration and the affirmation of his critics. The sad thing, though, is that Saul liked their praise. Saul liked the adulation that he received. Stuart Briscoe said that criticism will break your heart, but adulation will swell your head. And C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, Human beings are the only animals whose heads swell when they're patted on the back. And you see, from this point forward, Saul not only stood head and shoulders above everyone else, but also had a bigger head than everyone else in the nation. But you know, Saul is not that much different than, than you and I. We love to be praised, don't we? Don't you love it when your boss comes up and gives you a pat on the back and says, boy, you're doing a super job. Really appreciate you. 
or when your husband or wife does the same thing, affirms uh, the work that you're doing. Or gosh, you know, blow me over with a, uh, knock me over with a feather when, uh, when one of my kids comes up to me and says, Dad, you're, you're doing a great job as a dad. We love to hear things like that. We long for praise, don't we? It gives us that sense of okayness about who we are. The tough, the tough thing, the tough reality, though, is that once you begin to feed on praise and adulations, you can't get enough of it. Once you get a little bit, it develops an insatiable thirst in us for more. We just want more and more and more. And that's what we find in the life of Saul. And I want us to look this morning at two examples, one from chapter 13 and, and a second from chapter 15, of the way in which Saul sacrificed his kingdom because he sought to affirm his leadership in his own power rather than in the power of God. In chapter uh, 13, the events of which uh, occur several years later, Jonathan is, uh, has been born and is old enough to be uh, engaged in battle with his father at this point. Uh, Saul and his men are in battle with the Philistines again. And uh, things are not going well for the nation. Their back is against the wall. Uh, indeed, uh, Israel's army is quaking in their boots, hiding in caves. And the imminence of, uh, of the Philistine attack is obvious to all. And they're afraid because Samuel has delayed coming. Samuel, who promised to come seven days later and present a fellowship and a burnt offering as a way of seeking the favor of God for success in battle, had delayed his arrival. And the troops are beginning to lose their morale. They're beginning to scatter. Chapter 13, beginning in verse uh, 7, Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And Saul's men began to scatter. And so he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering just, excuse me, and Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that they did not come, you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You see what possessed Saul to do what he did? He knew he was breaking the law, Levitical law, and had to be a Levite to, uh, to offer such sacrifices. And so what, what Saul did was a grievous transgression of the law. But what possessed him to do it? It was fear. Fear of losing the determination of his men to fight. They were beginning to lose morale and beginning to scatter. Fear of losing the battle itself. But ultimately, it was fear of losing face 
with his people, losing their respect, losing their willingness to follow him, ultimately losing their praise. And so Saul takes matters into his own hands. He decides, I've got to do something rather than wait. He was a, kind of a take-charge kind of guy by this, this point in his life. He looked at the situation. He calculated his own resources and decided, this is what I'll do. This will rally the troops together. And sure enough, it did. Interestingly, the troops rallied after Saul did this. Even though he sinned, it was effective in terms of uh, mustering his, his army. Do you ever find yourself doing that? Do you ever find yourself growing impatient with God? You know, God, I've got this problem. And I've been talking to you about it for, it seems like, forever. You haven't done anything yet. And I'm growing tired of waiting. What are you inclined to do? If you're like me, you're probably inclined to, to start uh, figuring out all the angles, you know, applying your own ingenuity. You know, the scriptures do say God helps those who helps them, help themselves, right? And so we begin to plot and scheme and plan. And yet, as Samuel goes on to say in verse 13, you acted foolishly, Samuel, or Saul. You acted foolishly. You see, it's foolish to run ahead of God. It's foolish to try to do His work for Him. But it's also costly. Samuel goes on to say, You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, He would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. It was costly because it cost Saul the kingdom. It was foolish because it cost him an opportunity to see God work as God had worked so many times before in miraculous ways. And you know, the same thing is true when we run ahead of God. We miss out on opportunities to see Him work in our lives. We say, well, I got the job done. But our faith remains the same. In fact, sometimes it recedes because we don't get to see God work. And the result is twofold. It develops in us a sense of pride, a false sense of pride, because we begin to think far too highly of ourselves we begin to think that we can cut it on our own. The second thing it does, though, is, is even more subtle. It develops a sense of spiritual weariness because we grow tired of doing God's job for Him. See that? Weariness and apathy. God, where were you? You didn't come through, so I had to do it for you. And we begin to live as practical atheists, choosing to, to make these decisions ourselves, choosing to 
live in dependence upon our own resources. And the bottom line is that our confidence in God is shaken. It's eroded. He no longer becomes the first person we turn to when we're in trouble. You want to know if you're, if you're confidently trusting God? The best way to, to know is the next time you find yourself in trouble, be honest with yourself about where you turn first. Do you turn to self to figure it out? If so, that's who you're depending on. Do you turn to someone else to help you figure it out? If so, you're depending on them. The Lord wants us to turn to Him first. He wanted Saul to turn to Him first, to assemble the troops and say, guys, we need to wait because Samuel is God's spokesman and he said he'd be here and he's going to be. And we need to wait and we need to trust God because God is going to be strong through us in spite of our weaknesses. But instead, Saul took matters into his own hands. There's a second example, and that's in, in chapter 15. Beginning in verse 1, Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites, and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put them to death, men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. This is a most uh, unsettling text because it, it records uh, the Lord's command to uh, his people Israel to go and to totally wipe out the Amalekites, women and children and infants. We read that and we think, oh, how can that be consistent with the God of love that we read of in the New Testament? I think what we need to, to understand is who these people were. The Amalekites were uh, a thoroughly wicked people. They were nomadic uh, raiders, marauders, thieves, murderers. They trained their children to show no mercy toward those that they attacked. They killed first and asked questions later. And nearly 400 years earlier, the Amalekites had attacked Israel as they made their way up from Egypt under Moses' leadership. And yet God had shown tremendous patience toward these people and for 400 years had allowed them to continue to live without judging their sin, presumably hoping that... Uh, that through seeing the life of faith lived out in his people, they might come to repentance. And yet they didn't. It was time for judgment. And God chose Saul to lead the nation of Israel, a sinful nation as well, to uh, judge these sinful people in much the same way as he would later use Assyria and, and Babylon to judge his own people. I want to read verses 4 through 21, and I want you to notice the pronouns that are used in, uh, in this narrative. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at, at uh, Telam, 200 
thousand foot soldiers and ten thousand men from Judah. And Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. And then he said to the Kenites, Go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. And so the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. And then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. And all of his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the, and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled. And he cried out to the Lord all that night. And early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told that Saul had gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And he sent you on a mission saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord, your God, at Gilgal. You notice what we have here? We have Exhibit B of Saul's pride, Saul's unwillingness to lose face with his people. He brings Agag back, he was instructed to, to put everyone to death, and that certainly included the king. And yet he chose to bring him back, presumably to, dis, to display the conquered uh, king in the customary victory celebration in front of his own people. You can imagine the, the praise and the accolades that would come to, to Saul as he did that. And he spares the best of the sheep and the cattle and the lambs, ostensibly to sacrifice to the Lord and yet probably more likely because Saul's men wanted something 
some way to benefit from the danger that they put themselves in. And the most insidious example of Saul's pride of all is found in verse 12, where he erects a monument to his own honor. He chooses to take credit for this victory rather than acknowledging that God was with them, that God was the strength behind the victory. Now, we might look at this story and say, well, you know, Saul obeyed about 95% of what the Lord told him to do. That's not too bad, is it? Doesn't that count for something? Listen to Samuel's response. Verse 22. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. See, Samuel looks at what Saul did, and he said, You've been rebellious, you're arrogant, and you've rejected the word of the Lord. And for that, God has rejected you. In verses 24 and following, Samuel is quick to confess his sin and to ask for forgiveness. But as we read it, it just doesn't have the ring of truth to it. It has a sense of hollowness. Listen, then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have violated the Lord's command and your instructions. And then he says, why? I was afraid of the people. And so I gave in to them. Afraid of what? Well, he was afraid of their displeasure with him. He was afraid of losing face, losing their respect. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the edge of his robe and it tore and Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. And then perhaps the most telling statement of all, Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord, your God. You see, Saul was still far too concerned with how he looked. He confesses his sin, but he really doesn't understand it. He doesn't fully appreciate the ugliness of his self-centeredness and his pride. He excuses it. I was afraid of the people, so I gave in to them. And he still wants to be... Uh, Pat it on the back. Please honor me. Don't let me look bad in front of my people. And as the story goes on to say, it was Samuel who had to put Agag to death. You see, Saul's problem was not arrogance. Saul's problem was not inadequacy. Saul's problem was that he'd never turned to God. In 1 Chronicles 13, when David is uh, anointed to serve as king over the people, 
He calls the nation together. This is his first kingly act. First Chronicles 13, verse 2, He then said to the whole assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, and if it is, if it is the will of the Lord your God, let us send word far and wide to the rest of our brothers throughout the territories of Israel, and also to the priests and the Levites who are with them in their towns and pasture lands, to come and join us. Let us bring the ark of our God back to us. For we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. You see, the ark represented the presence of God. And it resided in Abinadab's house just a few miles away from Jerusalem. And for 40 years of Saul's reign, it sat there because Saul never pursued it. He never pursued the Lord his God. Saul spent instead his life pretending to be sufficient and adequate, yet always knowing deep down inside that he didn't have what it, what it took. He spent his life trying to hide his inadequacy. See, Saul didn't learn the secret of God's sufficiency. He never heard the Lord say to him as the Lord said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in your weakness. And that's the lesson that we need to learn today. You know, it's okay to be inadequate. It's okay to be insufficient, to be weak, to be frail. It's okay to fail. We all do. Struggling is permissible. Whether it's in our homes, in our marriages, with our children, whether it's at work, whether it's here in the church in relationships or in our relationship with God, it's okay to not be okay. That's the point of this story. The question is this. In the face of our inadequacies and in the face of our fears and our weaknesses, will we turn to God and let Him overwhelm us with His unconditional love and with His grace and with His strength? Or instead, will we continue to pretend? Will we continue to rely on self? I want to promise you today that if you turn to God, your load will be a whole lot lighter. And your relationship with God will be much more meaningful and your fellowship with one another will be much richer. Let's pray. Father, deliver us from this feeling that we have to have it all together, that we have to be adequate. For Lord, that feeling is incongruent with reality. Deep within our souls, we know that we don't have what it takes to live life as you intended us to live it. Free us from the, the feeling that we have to, to pretend. Lord, free us up to share our struggles with one another, to admit failure, to admit the fear of failure, both to one another as well as to you. And Lord, teach us what it means to experience the strength of your grace and your sufficiency. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.